Good morning. Uh, several years ago, on a Sunday morning, I had a woman come up to me and ask me the question. She said, why on Sunday mornings, a lot of times, don't you wear a tie? And as a pastor in church, she was just, you know, trying to understand that, why I chose some mornings not to wear a tie. At that time, I actually wore them quite often, but sometimes didn't. And I explained to her, I've never really been a big fan of ties personally. I have nothing against others wearing them. I just don't find them comfortable. I don't like them and everything. I don't like spending money on them. I just don't really like to do that. Uh, but I said, not against them, often wear them. Well, it was clear that that answer wasn't satisfying to her. And um, so I asked her, I said, you know, obviously this means more to you than it does to me. So could you help me understand why this means more to you? Because I, I really don't think that way about it. And she explained that she had grown up with uh, in church where men always wore ties, often wore suits uh, on Sunday mornings, and that she believed that was a way of expressing that Sunday morning was a special day, that when we came together to worship corporately, it was something special, and we should wear our very best because it, it reflects the fact that this is something special. And I told her, I, you know, where we really do agree is that corporate worship is something special, that it really is a, a remarkable privilege and that we need to treat it with great importance. And on that, we absolutely agree. But then she went on to explain to me that she believed that when people didn't wear their best clothing on Sunday morning, she really felt like it was making a statement to God that this isn't special, that worshiping you isn't special that in her mind it was actually disrespectful towards God. It was dishonoring to him. And then to me, she went on and explained that she felt like when I didn't wear a tie as a leader in the church, I was actually encouraging younger people in the church to do something that was dishonoring to God, that I set a bad example and they now were being disrespectful to God. And I told her, as I, as I hear your explanation, and I understand you believe it deeply, but as I hear your explanation, what I hear is that, that wearing a tie for you has become a standard by which you can judge the righteousness of another because it, it tells you whether they really love God or they really love the other. And I said, that's where, we, that's where we part ways. That's where we don't agree any longer. Because to me, it's not a standard that God has set for corporate worship in his word. Uh, not only about wearing a tie, obviously, but but even about wearing our very best clothing when we come together for corporate worship. It's just not something God has asked of us as a way to honor him, is what he wants us to do to honor him in those moments. Um, and I said, as for the influence on others, if it's not a standard God asked, then I'm okay with influencing others to, to not treat it as the most important thing. Uh, matter of fact, I think sometimes it could actually cause harm if we treat it as the most important thing for those maybe that can't afford the clothes that others can afford or or those who come who just simply didn't grow up with that tradition and, and don't understand it. So to me, it was important that we not lift that tradition, which I understood it was her preference and really didn't have a problem that it was her preference, that it was a tradition she enjoyed. But when that tradition got lifted up to the place where it was actually a standard for being right before God. Then I said, that's a problem. Now, we left good friends. We had many discussions afterwards about similar things. Uh, it wasn't something that caused a problem between us. 
And I would say that we're not, most of us, that different than her. We have other things. We have things that are our traditions, right? The things that we just, in our minds, it's just the way it should be. It's just right. Of course you could do, should do those things. And a lot of times they have no grounding, no, no real biblical support. Matter of fact, sometimes they even may have some connection to a biblical principle, but they're just a kind of a personal application that's not clear that that's the, the best or the only application of that principle. But we, we lift them up to a place that they actually become, in our mind, a command from God. They, they are a standard for righteousness. That was kind of what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were sort of the masters of that. In the story before us this morning, we take a good hard look at the Pharisees. They were the religious and academic elite in Israel at the time. And they advocated for this very precise, very detailed system of, of laws, but bylaws and applications of biblical law. And I mean, they just took a microscope to the law and just added all these other things that said, this is the right way to obey the law. Very detailed, but very focused on external compliance, very focused on what are the right things to do to be right before God, to be righteous. Later in Matthew, Jesus would say to them, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He actually doesn't say to them, it's wrong you care about tithing. But they gave incredible emphasis to things like tithing, keeping the Sabbath, dietary laws, incredible emphasis to those things. But he says, you're not even giving any attention, not paying attention at all to the more important matters of the law, to the purpose underneath it, to the intent, to the motives, to the, to the relational purpose, to what does this have to do with your relationship to God and your relationship with others, those, those things. Mercy and faithfulness and justice, those very relational things, those don't seem to be getting any emphasis uh, from you at all. Matter of fact, these Pharisees that came to speak to Jesus, to talk to him, they had traveled 80 miles from Jerusalem or more. And in that day, 80 miles or more was a trip. This was a very difficult trip that they took to be with this Jesus, who surely they'd heard about, heard about his teaching, his miracles, and they wanted to talk to him. And so they finally get there, hard journey. They finally come before Jesus. And here's the question they have to ask. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Of all the questions you could finally ask Jesus, why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Now, in this day, that's a pretty popular discussion, washing your hands. And you all ought to wash your hands often. But... They weren't worried about germs. They weren't worried about a virus. That wasn't the point. It was this hand washing was a ritual ceremonial hand washing that was about it was about purity before God. It was about being clean from the things that would defile us before God. And it was it was real, but in some ways also symbolic about we're preparing ourselves to present ourselves before God as clean. There are some Old Testament commands that talk about hand washing. Uh, one of the most important is in Exodus 30:17 through 21. Aaron and his sons are instructed to wash their hands and their feet as they go into the tabernacle and as they approach the altar, because as they come into this very sacred place, uh, 
They were to wash their hands and their feet to be clean, to present themselves before God in this very, very sacred place as his priests who represented the people. There's another situation, I think it's in Deuteronomy, where if there had been an unsolved murder in a town, where this town, they, they couldn't figure out how the murder had happened, the elders of the town would get together with the priests and a heifer would be sacrificed and the elders would wash their hands over top the sacrifice effort, heifer. And it was symbolic and it was a request to God of saying, God, will you make us clean? Will you clean us of this offense that we don't even know who did it? But will you, will you relieve our town of this offense and make us clean? So there were some very specific situations involving priests where hand washing was done. The Pharisees then expanded this. I'm sure they thought it's a good thing to do. It's part of being clean before God. So we'll expand it. It'll be every single person at every single meal that they'll do that. They'll wash their hands. I think there's probably people washing their hands at every meal. But again, this has been lifted up to the point now where this was, this was obeying God. This was being right before God. And if you didn't do this, you weren't right before God. So they're asking Jesus, why is it that your disciples, the ones you're choosing as leaders, don't care about being clean and right before God? What's wrong with them? This man-made tradition had now become God's command. Uh, even more, I think the problem that Jesus focuses on is not only the fact that they they took something that was a tradition and moved it up to this place that it was God's command, but also the problem was the fact that they, they believed that to be clean before God meant separating themselves and cleaning themselves from everything out there. Everything out there that would defile you, that would make you unclean, the sin out there was the thing that you had to make sure you were protecting yourself from and cleansing yourself of. And Jesus very clearly says to them, that's not enough. You may wash your hands all day long, but you're, no, but you're not righteous. You're not clean before God because the real defilement is in your own hearts. That's, that's the source of defilement. It comes from your own sin. That that needs cleansed. That needs to be cleaned up as we approach God, if we want to be righteous before God. And you can wash your hands all day and you're not going to solve that problem. And to draw their attention to that, Jesus says, because uh, they ask the question, why don't they wash their hands? And Jesus, like any good counselor, returns their question with a question. And Jesus says to them, why do you break the command of God for your tradition? And he quotes from the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Why do you break that command for your own tradition? You see, what the Pharisees had been doing is the Pharisees had decided that their own finances and their own material resources uh, that they should be using to help take care of their parents. That was one of the ways, clearly, if you honor, if you value your parents, especially in that culture where there weren't things like Social Security, if you honor and value your parents, then you help take care of them in their old age. They would be dependent upon family for their survival. So, of course, you would do that if you honor them. He says, but you have decided, you've set up this system where your own money and your own resources um, will be devoted to God, which is, of course, more spiritual than given to your parents, right? You'll devote them to God. 
Now that may sound like, well, that was a, still a big sacrifice. They gave everything away maybe to the temple. That's not what they were doing. They devoted them to, the, to God. They were God's servants. And so they devoted them to providing for them while they served God and not giving to their parents. And when they died, maybe that money would then go elsewhere to serve God. But they had access to it still instead of it being used to support their parents. So God says, you know, you, you do this thing. You, you, you do something that God did not ask you to do. You treat as a command something God never commanded. But you actually do it to get out of the very thing he's asked you to do, has commanded you to do, to honor your mother and father. And you know why you did it. When he asked that of him, you know why. You know this isn't about devotion to God. You know this is about keeping your stuff. That's what this is about. Look at your heart. They want to draw attention to, did they wash their hands, the outside? And Jesus turns their attention back and says, no, take a look at your own hearts before you look out at anybody else. And his condemnation of them is pretty harsh. Matter of fact, it's incredibly harsh in this passage. He calls them hypocrites, which the word, you know, means just an actor or a pretender. Uh, they're, they're fake. He says they're worshiping God in vain. Their whole life dedicated to worshiping God. And he says, you're doing it in vain. You're wasting your energy and time. It's not the real thing. You are plants that God did not plant and will be pulled up by their roots. He literally says of them, you are not followers of God. You, you think that's what you are. It's what you, your whole life's based on. But you're actually not followers and servants of God. And as leaders, you're blind guides. You're leading people astray. Pretty harsh. They focus this hard on the appearances of righteousness. And Jesus says, no, real righteousness, real, real cleanness before God is something that has to start in the heart. It has to be a work first of the heart. It's not that the outside doesn't matter. But if you skip that cleansing in the heart, the outside isn't clean. The actions aren't clean. The actions lose all their meaning because they are, their cleanness, their goodness, their rightness is tied to those godly purposes and intentions. It's kind of like a wife who uh, expresses to her husband, you know, I don't feel loved by you. And I, I wish you would talk to me in ways that are just more affectionate and more respectful. I, I just don't feel like you really truly love me. And her husband's response is, I, I pay the bills. I, uh, you know, I got lots of opportunities to mess around with other women and I don't do it. Uh, you know, I, I go to kids' events. Um, you know, I, I never hit you or strike you. Uh, you know, I take care of the house. I've got a really good husbandly list. I got a really good list of husbandly things. When the wife hears that list, what do you think she thinks? Oh, you're right. You do love me. No. She's saying that list, that list actually now keeps you from looking at your own heart towards me. That list now has become something you hold on to so you never have to examine your heart. That list not only is not the list I'm asking for. Maybe, maybe those are all good things. But, but to tell you the truth, that doesn't address the real issue here at all. But it actually keeps you from looking at the real issue. And that's what a lot of times the appearance of righteousness does for us. 
it keeps us from looking at our hearts. It keeps our attention someplace that, that feels a little more manageable, feels a little less like we need God to do something about it. Just last week, I reread a book that I had read uh, about 30 years ago. It was a book that was written by Doug Webster. He's a former pastor here at ECC over 30 years ago. He's actually here right before I came. Uh, and it's interesting reading the book because in the book he wrote it while he was pastor here. So you hear ECC come up, you hear Bloomington come up a lot. It's kind of fun to read a book where, you know, our church is kind of in the center of it. Uh, but as I read it, I reread it. I read it almost 30 years ago and reread it again last week. It struck me this is almost more um, applicable to today, to the situation in our country today and the, in the evangelical church today than it may have even been back when he wrote the thing. Now, it's out of print, so if you're going to read it, you're going to have to find it someplace. But it's a book called Choices of the Heart, Christian Ethics for Today. And here's just one quote from it. He said, from a biblical perspective, hedonism and self-righteousness are much the same in God's eyes. It is no better to be a legalist than a relativist. Both perversions express a willful selfism that neglects the heart of God's commands and the meaning of biblical morality. Whether I'm a relevist, a hedonist, who I just say, everything's about me. I'm the center of it and my life should revolve around me. Or you're a Christian legalist. One who says, you know, I want to ignore the things that I want to ignore. I want to call important the things I want to call important. I want to call right the things I want to call right. Uh, I want to set up a system of rules that honestly fit me well and that I feel in control of. Both, either one at, at its heart, doesn't require much of us depending upon God. Both of them allow us to be people who just kind of do it our own way on our own. Uh, neither really remind us of the fact of how desperately in need we are of God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's help if we're to live the life that we are called to live. I also think one of the other things that it does when we um, focus only on the external behaviors and forget the heart is it not only makes it so that we don't have to depend upon God, but it also makes it a whole lot easier to judge everybody else. Because if you can make up your own list of rules, if you can make up your own system of righteousness, which usually, whether we want to admit it or not, we kind of shape to us a little bit. We're in that decision a whole lot. And we make up our own list for righteousness. Then it becomes really clear who does it and who doesn't do it. And usually we're in the we do it group. I've, I've made up a list that fits me pretty well, that I'm pretty good about, and I do it. And it helps me be real clear about identifying the ones who don't do it. The them, the outsiders out there. There's the us and there's the them because we got a real clear list of external rules and appearances. If you start looking at the heart, if you start looking at sin in our hearts, our own selfishness, our own desire to be independent from God and do it our way, if you look at our lack of love that sometimes drives our choices, suddenly I'm not that much different than them, right? We may live it out in different ways, make different choices, but suddenly I'm a whole lot closer to them than different from them because sin's in my heart too. 
Selfishness is in my heart, too. Now, I'm, I may not live it out the same. I've told you all before, I was a counselor a couple of years in jail. I hated sometimes facing that I would be talking to someone who murdered somebody, someone who committed this horrible, horrible crime. And I found myself really connecting to them. I find myself suddenly realizing they're not that much different than me. I wanted them to be very different than me. But I, I got to know them. I found out they're really not. And I often found out our sins aren't that far apart. There's not that much distance between my sin and theirs. And I wanted it to be a great distance. But as I got to know them and heard their sin and their struggle, often what I found is, yeah, but by the grace of God, there I go. That would be me too. Harder to judge. Jesus says to them, he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, they are people who honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Jesus encourages the Pharisees again and again and us with them. Man, don't get so caught up in just cleaning up the outside and not looking at what's inside. Don't put all your attention there. Remember the heart. Uh, Here's a quote I love from J.C. Ryle. I actually got it from James Boyce, his commentary, but it's the 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle. He says this, What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. Our hearts matter to God. And you might say, that's so ambiguous. What does that mean to give my heart to God, to to be right in my heart before God? What in the world does that mean? But it is hard to put a simple definition to, right? What What is heart devotion to God and heart change? What's that look like? But you all kind of have some idea of it because most of us at some point have said to another, I love you with all my heart. You know, we've said it to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or one of our children. I love you with all my heart. Well, what do you mean when you say that? Why, why don't you just say I love you? Say I love you with all my heart because you want to communicate to them, no, I love you with everything I am. Not just with my mind or my actions, but with my feelings, with my devotion. Uh, I am am committed to you. You are vitally important to me. I give you a place in my life of value because you are incredibly valuable to me. I love you with my heart. God says to us, I want you to love me with your heart. I want you to obey me with your heart. I want your heart to be mine, to love the things I love and to hate the things I hate to be devoted to the things that I call you to be devoted to. I want your behaviors, but I don't want just the appearance. I want your heart. And we know that. It's what we want of anybody that that loves us. We want more than just some external behaviors. We want their heart. And that is absolutely something that requires a transformation that could only come from God. We cannot have the hearts that we need to have before God without the work of the Spirit in our lives. Transformed hearts required His work. It requires us going to Him, confessing our sin, 
and receiving his grace every single day if our hearts are going to be transformed. It requires us going to his word regularly and examining our own hearts in the light of his word. It requires us being with his people and helping each other to see our own hearts in relationship with others. Heart change is what God calls us to. Let's pray. And Father, we do confess that, that we have hearts uh, that are often um, that we want to hold on to ourselves, that we want to somehow claim that we are good and right and okay in our hearts. But Father, we know that's not true. We know, Father, that often even when we're doing right, we're not doing right for the reasons that you call us to do it. We know, Father, that we all struggle with this just love for ourselves that sometimes trumps everything else. Father, we know that often it is hard to submit to you, to, to own the fact that you have the right to be Lord over our lives. Father, we know in our hearts there's sin. How thankful we are, Father, that you know it, and that through the blood of your Son, you have made a way for us that our hearts might be clean. In your blessed name we pray. Amen.